0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-ass history this week. On the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about some of the uh, some of the cleverest and funniest last words that people have uttered throughout history, just before they died. Now, this is a notoriously uh, dicey thing to research. It's, uh, I mean, to be frank, there's a lot of just made-up nonsense when it comes to people's last words because, you know, as the saying goes, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, and besides that there's also the fact that you know the person that you're making stuff up about is not around to contradict you or correct you anymore are they so I've done my due diligence on the four people we're going to talk about today I've done uh, you know a surprising amount of research given again the name of the uh, the podcast and I'm reasonably confident that they did in fact say the things that the stories tell us that they did just before they died look I'm very ready to be wrong about this I might be wrong so for you know obviously I I apologize but once again do ask you to double-check the name of the podcast before you, uh, you're writing complaining. Um, but, you know, sifting through the the made-up nonsense, and there is a lot of made-up nonsense, um, uh, because I, like, I think people just like thinking up zingers that would have been really funny and attributing them to people anyway. So to get through a lot of that. For, for, for instance, on his deathbed, um, when asked by a priest to renounce Satan, the French philosopher Voltaire is supposed to have said, now is not the time for making new enemies, which obviously is very clever, it's very funny, and it's also very made up. This quote first appeared in a joke, in a newspaper in the eighteen fifties. It was published just as a just as a gag in a newspaper. Um and it was only it was first attributed to Voltaire in the nineteen seventies, over a hundred years after it first appeared in print as a joke. So um a lot of nonsense, as I say. Another famous line um, supposedly came from the the Mexican, Re- Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa. You may have heard of this? You may have heard of this bloke when he was assassinated? He said, apparently, "Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something important." So, you know, obviously couldn't think of anything funny to say. So, it's like, make sure you make sure you, you you go and tell everyone I said something you know that was worthy of being recorded. It turns out he didn't even say that because. He was killed instantly when a group of seven assassins all emptied their weapons into the car that he was in and uh, he didn't really get much of a chance to fire off one last uh, quick pre-mortem quip there. Anyway, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the next four that we're going to get across here are genuine. They are reliably recorded in multiple sources, uh, but again, you know, wouldn't be surprised if one of them ends up being bogus, let me know if that's the case. But nonetheless, let's get across these four people in their supposed last words, and, and of course, give some context as to why they've ended up being so, uh, so funny or, or weird or strange or, or entertaining. So... We're going all the way back for our first one, going all the way back to 1793, which was the year where Marie Antoinette died. Now, you've almost certainly heard of the famous Marie Antoinette, uh, the French queen. She was beheaded during the French Revolution, and her last words were, Pardon me, sir, I did not do it on purpose. Um, now, you might already know why she said this moments before her head was lopped off her shoulders by a geared scene. But if you don't, I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, it's not the most famous quote attached to her, in fairness, actually. I mean, that, of course, is let them eat cake, which, rather interestingly, there isn't a scrap of evidence to suggest that she ever actually said. Uh, while she definitely said, pardon me, so I didn't do it on purpose, she never said let them eat cake. It's supposed This 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 idea that she did was supposed to paint her as this, uh, pain this out-of-touch, noble, Um, you know, apparently was said in response to finding out the commoners had no bread. You know, she goes, oh, why don't they just eat cake instead if they've got no bread? Um, Actually, technically brioche, which is a type of like sweet, fancy bread that's made with like eggs and milk. Um, Anyway, point is, she didn't say it, right? The philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he wrote about this quote and vaguely attributed it to this nebulous great princess who he didn't name. People just assumed that that was Marie Antoinette, although he probably just made up the quote out of nowhere altogether. Because again, there's no evidence that she ever said it. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about what she definitely did say uh, before she died. But let's make this woman first and and find out what she was all about. She was Austrian. She was born as the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor Francis I and the Habsburg uh, Empress Maria Theresa in 1755. And she married the future French King Louis XVI in 1770, although he was just the Dauphin at the time. Um she wasn't even 20 when she beca- uh, became queen when Louis the 15th died in uh, 1774 she ascended to the throne with her husband who then became Louis the 16th and initially she was generally well liked uh, particularly by Louis the 16th i have to say her husband absolutely adored her and um you know allowed her she oversaw the a lot of the social activity at the Royal Court, she loved to gamble. She gambled away heaps and heaps of money, losing and, and I mean, and winning occasionally, uh, great big stacks of cash at the billiards and the cards tables. And uh, she gave birth to four children, although only one of them survived to adulthood, uh, also called Marie Therese, same name as her mum. Uh, and Marie Therese, this Marie Therese went on to become Queen of France in later years for 20 minutes. And you can hear all about that in episode 132. Get across it. Anyway. Marie Antoinette, she was quite, she was relatively private for a monarch, um, uh, and there were plenty of people who didn't like her very much. And as as the years went on, this number of people grew. There were nasty rumours and stories that spread about her as you know the political discontent in the lead up to the French Revolution grew, leading to things like the affair of the diamond necklace, episode ten. Get across there, um, but in particular, what the, the the focus of people's ire when it came to me uh, when it came to Marie Antoinette, mostly was that she was seen as rich and out of touch and that she was spending just a fortune on clothes and, and food and fripperies and whatever else, uh, you know, when the rest of the rest of the country starved. So ultimately, by the time the revolution arrived, she was more or less, you know, a poster girl for the excesses of the of the upper class and an extremely unpopular figure. And this resulted in her arrest, along with the rest of the royal family, once the revolution kicked off in earnest. Now, King Louis XVI, of course, you may know this, he was tried, he was executed in early 1793. And Marie Antoinette wasn't far behind him. She was convicted of high treason in October, same year, in 1793. And she was also condemned to death. She was also going to get her head chopped off by a guillotine. Now, she was taken after this sentence was passed down, and you know, on the day of her execution, she was taken from the prison in an open cart. Most of the, well, no, maybe not most, but a lot of the royals were taken, a lot of the nobles were taken to the the place of execution in in a closed carriage. But she, you know, was this hated figure. She was taken an open cart and people mocking her, chucking stuff out or whatever else as she's uh, as she's being uh, wheeled off to this um, to the uh, to the Place de la Concorde or the the Place de la Revolution as it was known back, back then. Um, her head had been shaved. Her hands were tied behind her back. There was a rope leash around her neck, so it wasn't a very dignified end for this uh, for this queen here. And after reaching the, the Place de la Revolution, uh, which obviously, as I say, known as the, the, the Place de la Concorde today, it's uh, on the Champs-Élysées in central Paris, she was taken up on the scaffold uh, to the waiting guillotine. And it was here, on her way up to, you know, being led to, uh, to this piece of machinery that was going to kill her, that she uttered her last words, which were, as I said, "'Pardon me, sir, I didn't do it on purpose.' Now, I wonder if you know what it was that she didn't do on purpose. On her way to the guillotine, on her way to, you know, kneel down and have her head lopped off, she accidentally stood on the foot of her executioner. So, you can say what you want about Marie Antoinette. She was exceedingly polite to the last, I suppose. I mean, not that it not that it helped not that it helped her. Obviously she had her head chopped off all the same and her body was chucked into an unmarked grave, but I guess you know it. Uh, it just goes to show that manners are, are very important at any in any situation, even you know at your own execution. Although they're not going to, they're not they're not so important that they're going to get you out of having having your head removed from your shoulders. Anyway, the next time that someone brings up Marie Antoinette and you know her famous "let them eat cake" quote, you can now give them a good and proper "well, actually," and then you can even throw in the story about stomping on the executioner's foot as a chaser. Nice one. John Sedgwick was a general in the U.S. Army and he fought for the Union during the American Civil War in the 1860s. He's very famous for his last words, They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. I mean, you've probably already guessed exactly why that was the very last thing he ever said. And, you know, if you don't know and perhaps you're hazarding a guess, I would would wager that you're probably correct. But let's pace ourselves here and let's explain exactly what happened. Sedgwick was born in 1813 and he was named after his grandpa, who was also obviously called John Sedgwick. And uh, John Sedgwick, the elder, had fought as a general for George Washington during the American Revolutionary War. So like his grandpa... Uh, Young Sedgwick also joined the military, and he fought in various conflicts in the lead up to the Civil War, like the Mexican-American War, and he also went off on expeditions to establish new forts out west in modern-day Colorado, so he's a busy bloke. But then came the onset of the American Civil War in 1861, in which, to begin with, he enjoyed a series of promotions, although he probably didn't enjoy a series of injuries that also came along at the same time. Uh, Throughout his Civil War campaign, he fought in a couple of notable battles. He fought in the Seven Days Battles uh, and the Battle of Gettysburg as well. And he acquitted himself as a very capable and effective officer. He wasn't brilliant. He wasn't world beating, but he was dependable. He was reliable, perhaps a little risk averse, but overall, you know, pretty popular with the troops that he led. Despite all this, however, he very narrowly avoided getting dropped altogether from the army and from service for the Union. When General Meade reorganized the Army of the Potomac in, uh, in 1864, Sedgwick wasn't very well liked by everyone at the top, uh, particularly by Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Uh, and his career as a general nearly ended because of this. He was nearly dropped from command. But it's kind of a shame that he wasn't, to be honest. It, it, it would have been better for him and his longevity if he, if he had been dropped at this point, to be honest, because his death very quickly followed his new deployment as uh, as he was sent back off into battle after surviving the the General Meade's reorganization. So, Sedgwick and his Sixth Corps they faced off against Confederate forces as part of the Overland Campaign against General Robert E. Lee. Now, uh, Sedgwick was involved in in a couple of different uh, a, a couple of different actions here and there. He 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 fought in the at the inconclusive Battle of the Wilderness. He lived to tell the tale there. But at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, he wasn't quite so lucky. On the 9th of May 1864, Sedgwick was leading his corps against the Confederate flanks during this battle, and he was doing this under fire as well. The Confederates had had, uh, sharpshooters taking shots at Sedgwick and his men from almost a kilometre away, and I can... Already hear many of you immediately now going, yep, I was right. I knew this was how it was going to end. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, it's very difficult when I tell you the last words to begin with. It's very difficult to catch you by surprise here. Anyway, he and his men, they're ducking around. They're ducking for cover as these bullets are whizzing past. But, uh, well, I say Sedgwick and his men were. Sedgwick wasn't, right? Because given the huge distance, as I say, a kilometre or so between the um, Sedgwick's men and, and these Confederate sharpshooters, Sedgwick is not impressed, right? He's not impressed by all of his, all of these blokes, you know, hiding, ducking, bloody trying to find cover, that sort of stuff. And again, you, you see where this is going, because he starts going about, you know, he's going between all of his blokes. They're trying to hassle the flank here, and he's he's trying to g them up, and he's, he's shaming their cowardice. He's going what? Men dodging this way for single bullets, what will you do when they open fire along the whole line? So he's there trying to get them up, trying to get them to be a little less concerned about these, you know, these blokes taking pot shots at them. But this didn't help the situation. Him going along and trying to get his soldiers up and about and a bit more involved. All of his men are still seeking cover. They're ducking and flinching at the enemy fire. And it was then that Sedgwick said the very last thing that he would ever say, which was, of course... Why are you dodging like this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And, well, need I say, even if they couldn't hit an elephant, they certainly could hit him. And just moments after he said this, he was shot just below his left eye and he fell to the ground and bled out. Talk about tempting bloody fate, Sedgwick, old son. Poor old General Sedgwick. Not only did he lose his life there at the Battle of Spotsylvania, but he also looked like a bit of a goose as he did so. And I suppose it's a shame, really, that he, you know, didn't look like a bit of an elephant instead, because then they would have missed him. James W. Rogers gave us a bit of gallows humour on his way out because just before he died, he said, I done told you my last request, a bulletproof vest. Now, technically speaking, these weren't his actual, actual last words. He said one more thing before he died. But hey, let's let the truth get in the way of a good story just this once, just as, as, as a treat, right? Anyway. Rogers was a career criminal. He was uh, finally executed in, uh, in 1960 after being found guilty of murder. Here's his story and here's the lead up to his very, very nearly last word, shall we say that. Rogers was born in 1910. Uh, by the time he was 16, he was already mixed up in the criminal world as a, as a prohibition era bootlegger. And from there, he moved on to things like armed robbery. He spent most of his time in and out of prison uh, here and there throughout the years. But in 1957, Rogers got work as a security guard at a uranium mine in New Mexico in the US. But this didn't end up going too well for him. Or, or for that matter, for a miner who worked in the mine by the name of of Charles Merrifield, who, you know, was a, was a, a colleague of Rogers. Because on the 19th of June in 1957, Rogers and Merrifield got into an argument. And this argument, of all things was about the correct way to grease the scoop shovel of an excavator. Now, tempers flared, and this argument, uh, shall we say, got a little out of hand, because Rogers shot Merrifield several times and killed him. So, I mean, I don't know how passionate you have to be about excavator maintenance to kill another man over their preferred way to do it, but that's what happened with Rogers. Rogers then attempted to flee. He tried to drive away from the mine, but he was caught by the cops, and he was charged with murder. Now, he took a couple of very interesting lines when it came to defending himself in court. He first said that he had, you know, he'd been defending himself. He'd he'd killed uh, Merrifield in self defence. He said that he'd felt threatened. Uh, Merrifield had been had been holding up a spanner and waving it at him, and so he'd killed him again in in, in self defence. Uh, This didn't hold up when evidence suggested that Merrifield had been at the controls of the excavator that they'd been arguing over when Rogers had shot him. So, I mean, I don't know how skilled he was at using the excavator, but if he was controlling the excavator at the same time as, you know, waving around a spanner, I guess he's very good at his job. So Rogers changed tack after it emerged that this defence wasn't going to serve him very well. And instead, he offered a plea of insanity, and he based this plea of insanity on the fact that he had syphilis. Now, I was very sceptical of this when I first saw that, because obviously syphilis, I mean, if you don't know too much about syphilis, it's sometimes, uh, it, it, is, it is rather infamous for its ability to mimic a whole bunch of different diseases when it comes to symptoms, but I didn't think insanity was going to be one of them. So I looked it up, and it turns out that yes, untreated syphilis can result in all sorts of things: seizures, psychosis, dementia, all sorts of uh, of uh, neurological uh, neurological effects. There, so maybe he was onto something, but ultimately it didn't matter because Rogers was tested for syphilis and didn't have it. So that defence was a non-starter. When he was actually when he was sentenced to death, he was like, "Oh, it doesn't matter." It doesn't matter how you kill me. It doesn't matter what you do to me because I'll be dead of this syphilis before long. And they're like, mate, we've tested you. You don't have syphilis, all right? You need to calm down. Anyway, he was found guilty of murder. He was sentenced to death. And he was also given the choice of the method of his execution. He was given the choice between either being hanged or going in front of a firing squad. And of course, I mean, I've already told you his last, his very nearly last words, so you already know what he picked, don't you? Yes, indeed. He opted, of course, for the firing squad. He did lodge three appeals against his sentence, but all of them were denied. And so on the 30th of March, 1960, he was taken out to a clay flat near the prison where he'd been held, and there... Uh, He was strapped to a chair and he was asked if he had had any final requests uh, before the firing squad began. And it was then that he said, I done told you my last request, a bulletproof vest, which I think is a pretty good line, to be honest, for someone who is quite literally staring down the barrel of his end here. I think that is a pretty good line to have come up with there. So well done, Rogers old mate. Despite the tradition of offering condemned men their last requests, Roger's particular request was denied, unfortunately, for him. He was not given the bulletproof vest that he, uh, he asked for. And uh, when it comes to his actual last words, by the way, I suppose I should mention because that, that wasn't exactly what he said last. He's, he's, the last thing, the very, very last thing that he said was in response uh, to an offer of a coat before he was shot. They, they said, you know, a bit chilly, do you, do you want a coat uh, while, while you're sitting there waiting? And he declined and he said, don't worry, I'll be where it's warm soon. Which isn't too bad either, really. Honestly, coming from a bloke who is about to die, it's, uh, you know, it's a a pretty good bit of gear there. Anyway, his wit wasn't going to save him as the sun rose, the five firing squad members they took aim... And they fired four bullets and one blank at Rogers. And of course, the blank, the conscience round, as it's uh, as it's known, it was loaded into one of the rifles at random. So the five men, well, you know, each of the five men could convince themselves that they were the one who had shot the blank and and, and not killed this bloke. Pretty standard thing. Interesting thing that happened uh, when it came to firing squads. Pretty standard thing there. And that these five blokes, by the way, the, uh, the, the people in the firing squad there, they each got paid 75 bucks for their work that morning, which isn't too bad. And... Uh, On top of the $75, they also got an impromptu, although very short, comedy show, so not a bad morning for them. Now, you've heard of James Bond, of course, and you might know about the bloke who created the character and therefore the franchise. It was a fella named Ian Fleming, a British author, and his last words were... I'm sorry to bother you, chaps. I don't know how you get along so fast with the traffic on the road these days. Fleming seemed to have had a very interesting life, and he had quite an interesting death as well, as we'll get to. But before he was an author, he worked as a journalist. Okay, sure. A banker. All right. Not super interesting there. But also a naval intelligence officer during the Second World War. There it is. There's the interesting part. He was born in 1908 into a very, very wealthy family. Indeed, his, his dad was a well-connected parliamentarian. And uh, Fleming was was educated at a bunch of, of, of different schools for rich kids. And he, he generally seemed to have lived a, a life of, of, of great privilege and, and wealth here. Um, uh, but after, after leaving school, he worked for Reuters as a journo. And then he did a bit of banking, as I say. But at the outbreak of the Second World War, his political connections landed him a job as the assistant to Rear Admiral John Godfrey, who was the Director of Naval Intelligence. Now, you look at this situation, you go, yeah, classic. Politically connected, rich kid gets a job for which he has no qualifications. Is not actually, you know, he's not in any appropriate situation to do this job. Classic, of course, that's what happens. But... Fleming seemed to have done a pretty bloody good job all the same despite as I say being completely unqualified for this position as uh, you know as as a as a reasonably reasonably important figure in um, in naval intelligence Fleming excelled at the job he eventually gained the rank of commander in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve a rank that James Bond fans will know that Bond also has and while working for naval intelligence Fleming helped to plan and organise espionage missions, including the famous Operation Mincemeat, which was the the misinformation plan that disguised the Allied invasion of Sicily in 1943. If you don't know what happened there, uh, Fleming was behind this plan. They took the body of a Welsh homeless fellow... They dressed him up in an officer's uniform, and they planted fake plans that acted as a smokescreen, um, uh, suggesting that there was going to be an Allied invasion in Greece and whatever else, to actually disguise the fact they were going to come in through uh, through Sicily. And as many World War II historians will know, the invasion of Sicily was uh, was rather successful, and you know it's difficult to say exactly what happened. Because of Operation Mincemeat, but the Germans reinforced the areas that that this um, this misleading uh, intel suggested they should, and didn't reinforce Sicily, and obviously the Allies were able to were able to invade there with relative success. So maybe Fleming was uh, and his plan was very very important there. Anyway, p- point is he was good at his job, and he had plenty of experiences in the world of naval intelligence, the world of you know espionage and and, and military secrets, whatever else, and. All of that set him up very well indeed after the war when he moved on to his next project, which was writing spy fiction, something that he'd he actually said that he'd wanted to do for a very long time. At the end of the war in 1945, he got a seemingly cushy job at a newspaper, and this job gave him three months holiday every year in winter, must be nice. And so he started spending his winters in Jamaica. He had a house built over in Jamaica called GoldenEye. Uh, Operation, GoldenEye actually is originally started off as a military term um, as part of the, the UK war effort, Operation GoldenEye. You may have heard of it. But he named his house this, and obviously it went on later on to become the name of, of, of part of the Bond franchise. But in this house in Jamaica, every winter, he would, he would, uh, he would head there. And he would start writing these books. And the first novel that he wrote, you may know, of course, was Casino Royale, the very beginning of one of the world's biggest media franchises, centred on the fictional spy, James Bond. Well, I say fictional. It seems that Fleming created Bond as this sort of amalgamation of various intelligence operatives that he had worked with during the war and even put in a fair bit of himself in in the character uh, in terms of personality and, weirdly, alcohol preference as well. Um, And he named this character. He named James Bond. This is really, really funny. He named James Bond after a famous American ornithologist, right? Because in Fleming's words, uh, the name James Bond is the dullest name I ever heard. Everyone knows James Bond's story. Of course, he's this daring, dashing, suave, womanizing, ruthless, self-indulgent super spy and if you don't agree with that assessment, you're also disagreeing with the author himself, because Fleming on the, is on the record as saying this: <clears throat> Bond is not a hero, nor is he depicted as being very likable or admirable. He's not a bad man, but he is ruthless and self-indulgent. In any case, despite a fair bit of criticism from from some, these books didn't go by by you know many literary critics. They were they were panned and dismissed. But despite this criticism, they were. Very successful, and they spawned the famous films that continue through to this very day, of course. And Fleming continued to write these books in Jamaica between January and March each year, and he ultimately wrote 12 in all, many of which were adapted into films, although the the, the films offer, often differ significantly from the books themselves. Um, and on top of that, Fleming also wrote a kid's book called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang the Magical Car. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's about a car that can fly, of all things, and In this book, it helps to foil the robbery of a famous Parisian chocolate shop. So I guess as an author, Fleming had range. You have to give him that. But his career as an author ultimately wasn't to last. And that's because his life wasn't to either. Just like Bond. I mean, I said that Fleming put a lot of himself into Bond. And just like Bond, Fleming was a very, very heavy drinker. He was a heavy smoker as well, though. Does Bond does Bond smoke anymore? He probably doesn't, does he? They probably, probably just quietly dropped that, haven't they? Like Marvel Comics did with Wolverine. So what does he do now? Does he vape now or something? Anyway, whatever, whatever, whatever the case, Fleming, drinking, smoking, and he's not in good nick, you know, thanks to the grog, thanks to the durries. And on the 11th of August in 1961, he was staying at a hotel in Canterbury when after dinner, he had a heart attack and he collapsed. An ambulance was called, but it was uh, it was no good. It was too late for this fella. After being taken to the hospital, Fleming, he passed away in the early hours of the 12th. But on the way to the hospital, he said his last recorded words, which are strangely appropriate given his legacy. Everyone knows that if there is one thing that British people hate, it is being a bother or causing hassle. And... Uh, As he was being driven to the hospital by these ambos, not being a hassle, this very British trait, seemed to have been one of the priorities of Ian Fleming, you know, the man who created one of Britain's most powerful and enduring cultural icons. Because his last words were, as I say, I'm sorry to bother you, chaps. I don't know how you get along so fast with the traffic on the road these days. A pointless and altogether very British apology, I think, worrying about troubling people who are doing their jobs while he's, you know dying. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is a, a small collection of some of the some of the funniest or, or, or cleverest last words from history. And I do hope you enjoyed it. I may do another episode like this because there are plenty of others, although the sourcing on them isn't always super reliable, so I'll have to do some more digging. I I, I do know I run the risk of, of of becoming maybe you know three quarter even full ass history here when when doing this amount of research. But hey, it's what the it's what the exalted listeners of this podcast deserve. That is that for another week of half house history. Thanks for tuning in. All the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way now. half There's the contact form there. Please get in touch with episode suggestions. Still looking for silly or funny or ridiculous ones. Um, I might do some more sort of serious ones but uh, broadly speaking I'm looking for ones that are you know a little bit lighter a little bit uh, a little bit sillier um, and I want to thank everyone who is uh, who, who gets in touch with uh, with feedback or comments or suggestions um, and of course a special thank you to all the people supporting me on Patreon if you want to join patreon.com half-arsed history Um, I'm in talks with a couple of different companies for the next uh, merch ideas Uh, but I do want suggestions still it is not too late to get any suggestions for merch I'm still hammering out the details of how it's all going to work so if you've got ideas for you know they'll probably be the staples they'll be like t-shirts looking at mugs maybe this time we'll see maybe some prints Uh, I'm not sure about the magnets or the badges Uh, don't know if notebooks will be coming back but if there is anything in particular that you think you'd like, or if you've got an idea for a, you know, something you'd like printed on a t-shirt, for example, please let me know. Do it sooner rather than later, because I am hoping to uh, to get the ball rolling on uh, on merch and, and what it looks like uh, very soon so I can have it available um, well before the end of the year. We'll see. But, you know, any ideas, please get them in. But that's that. I think I've done everything. Thank you for listening, I guess, and for telling people about it. I, I people come in and they tell me that they uh, people they write in or, or let me know that they've, you know, been listening to the podcast, they're enjoying it. That's great. Thank you very much. But most importantly, they're telling other people about it. That's how the, that's that's it, mate. I mean, think about think about all the podcasts that you listen to. Why do you listen to them? Usually because it's someone else rec- someone else recommended it to you. You could be that person that goes and recommends Half-Assed History to someone else. Oh, you could be that Half-Assed History hero, my friend. Uh, please do. Got to get the numbers up. Anyway, that's that. I want to leave you with one more uh, example of some famous last words. This one comes to us from the Norwegian playwright Hen- uh, Henrik Ibsen. Right now, this guy, uh, he towards the end of his life was quite unwell. He'd had a series of strokes, and he wasn't. Uh, he-, he wasn't in very good health. Right, but uh, one day he had a visitor. Right, and his nurse uh, said to the visitor. Uh, you know, trying to be, I guess, optimistic and, and positive and and hopeful about things. The nurse said to the visitor, Oh, it looks like he's getting a bit better. You know, it looks like he's, his condition is... Im- I don't know exactly what the nurse said, but basically she said something like, Oh, you know, it looks like his condition is improving. It looks like he's. Uh, it, it looks like he's getting better. And Ibsen responded to this with what would go on to be his last words, as he died shortly after saying, On the contrary...